Have you ever played paintball before? Who's played paintball before? Be honest, played paintball before. I love some paintball. I went out playing uh, paintball one year. Have you ever played paintball without your helmet? Just randomly? My brother, what in the world? Uh, it's not a fun thing to, to encounter. I've not tried it myself because some things kind of move kind of fast. There was a, a time where me and some young adults, we went out um, playing um, uh, some, called speedball. And so we were out there playing. It was about five of us on one side, five on the other side. And they blew the whistle. And I'm that kind of guy that I'm just, I'm running to the front as fast as I can. I'm trying to get to the front. Doritos, the Doritos, not a chip. All right? I know I got some weight, but, but Dorito is the actual blow-up thing that you stand behind it for defense. And so I'm up there as fast as I can because I want my team to move up as quick as they can. So I'm engaging the enemy as fast as I can. And so I'm pop, 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 pop. I'm shooting. Well, this guy, somehow he slips up really close. And I see him, and he jumps out. And I'm over here, and I see him in the corner of my eye. And, I go to, and as soon as he starts to shoot, I just drop as fast as I can. And as soon as I hit my rear end, I feel this splat on my face. And I'm thinking, how did he hit me? He, he was on the other side. I fell down on this side. Did I, like, suck the paintball down when I went around? I'm still trying to figure out. And, then I, and as I wipe it away, I look, and there is one of the girls on my team, Tiffany, and she's holding her gun going. <laughs> she shot me. She shot me in my face. He's on my own team, you know? I'm thinking, <laughs> and so the ref's like, out, you're out. I'm like, man. And so here's what I know. I thank God I had a helmet on that day because it'll hurt. If you've ever been shot by a paintball, them jokers hurt, especially when you're getting shot by your own team in the face at 10 yards out, you know? But here's what I know is that, that life is like paintball sometimes. You got bullets coming at you left and right. Sometimes it's from the home team, too. But you're in this firefight, and as they're shooting left and right, you would never want to go into paintball without a helmet. But somehow we feel like it's okay to, to engage in life without our helmet of salvation. Because don't you know the enemy is, he is um, on the prowl. His lies, his accusations are coming at us from all different directions. And today Paul is going to show us how, how drastically we need a helmet to protect us. And so this morning, as we pray, I want you just, I just, I feel in my spirit today, I just felt like as I was just praying and, and, and even there in worship, I just felt like lies were in here, like lies were in here. And so my heart today is simply this, Lord, there's some lies that's been said about people in here. I need you to strip off. It's time for those things to go. And so would you pray with me this morning that maybe that's you or maybe that's your neighbor, but they came in with a line attachment that's been, something's been said about them and the enemy wants to hold that over them. And I believe today the Lord's going to show us in his word how to rip those things off and, and how to guard our minds against that. Father in heaven, I pray. Lord, we need your word on so many fronts. But God, this, this one particular thing, Father, this one particular thing, our mind, so very important. The mind is the control center, the, the cockpit, Father, to all that we do. And Lord, we need that mind to be renewed. We need it to be protected. We also need to know how the enemy attacks it. And so I pray today 
as we study your word, you would show us, Lord, give us faith, free us, Lord, from those attacks and those accusations that we've grown up with, we've believed, we've adopted. Father, free us from those things that we might walk in true freedom. I'm believing today. God, your word says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I'm believing that there is freedom in here today for somebody. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 6, I think I might have to do a two-part series on this hymn of salvation because there really is so much that we really just can't skip past. Uh, And so today, I want to look at the strategies of the enemy. How do we um, circumvent his attacks? How do you know where you're at in, in the game plan? Satan has a game plan for you. He doesn't just run up to you with random um, attempts or approaches. He tries the same thing all the time, every time. But before we get into there, I, I want to look at this helmet of salvation. Uh, as we look at the helmet of salvation, Paul is going through the list of the spiritual armor, and now he finally arrives at this, this helmet. And there's not much to say other than put on the helmet of salvation. So we have to kind of construct some things in terms of Scripture to figure out what Paul really is trying to, to go after. I think it's obviously uh, pretty simple for us to know that he is looking at the brain, looking at the mind, the head. It's very important. Uh, but what I want you to see is that this helmet is not just any old helmet. It's a very beautiful uh, helmet. And in fact, Paul, he's a scholar of the Old Testament, and he knows his Scripture really well. And so when he describes the helmet, um, of salvation, he understands how beautiful it is. He says, he, a reference, he, he would reference in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so Paul understands this scripture in the context in the back of his mind that salvation is beautiful. That it, it is, it, in fact, it is the most beautiful gift that you and I could ever receive from God is salvation itself. And so as we look at the Roman soldier's helmet, what we see is it's actually a piece of art. It was really a, a, a true work of art. It was uh, the most decorative piece worn in the battle. Uh, It was incredibly shiny, polished brass. It had relieved etchings of uh, of their farm pasture, their their fruits, their cattle, those things that was etched into the sides of their helmet reminded them of the the abundance or the fruit that they had back home. And so as they wore this helmet, it also had uh, a huge, go ahead and show that picture, had a huge plume right there. And so uh, this is actually a smaller one. When they walked in parades, they were a bit bigger, but this is the one that they would, um, uh, the Praetorian Guard would actually wear this one, but they would wear these huge plumes of horsehair uh, and other types of um, uh, feathers from, from birds, and this was to create notoriety. They wanted you to know that in a sea of people, there was a Roman soldier. So imagine being in a great crowd and you can't see anybody else's shoulders uh, from shoulders down, but you see this big helmet walking around, and immediately, here's what you know, there's a Roman soldier right there. Now, now as I begin to 
realize that, here's what I thought. I thought, you know what? If the helmet represents salvation, then the Lord absolutely wants us to walk around in the midst of the crowd of people in the midst of this world. And people look at you and say, now there's a Christian. There's somebody right there I should pay attention to. They don't look like everybody else. Matter of fact, they look to be heads and shoulders of everybody else. They look to be greater than than they actually are because that's what a Roman soldier looked like when they wore these helmets and extended their whole vertical position, their height, and they looked bigger than they actually were. And Scripture tells me that greater is he in me, that greater is in the world. So I actually walk around in a greater posture, in a greater stature. I don't walk around in Scott's frail old body and lack of confidence, but I walk around as Christ did in his authority. And this is what the helmet is trying to tell me and you, is that if you're a Christian, square your shoulders, lift your chin, walk around knowing who you are and who you belong to. And next week we'll get into what is the knowledge of salvation so we can understand our confidence in that. But this, this uh, helmet was also heavy. Because it was, it was prone to attacks. And so it had to sit heavy on the head. It had some sponge material to keep it in there. Um, one of the favorite um, weapons that their enemies used was a battle axe, a short battle axe. And so they would try to get the shield to drop or they would do certain things. But they were always trying to hit the head of the soldier. And so he would wear this helmet. But also they were arrows flying constantly, so the soldier had to have his helmet on. If the soldier went to battle without his helmet, he was simply asking for death. It was suicide to go into the, to the, the battle without his helmet. And so you and I, it's the same way. We, we have to make sure that when we go into this world, we have a spiritual helmet on as well. You need to know the enemy is trying to whack at your helmet of salvation. He's trying to strike at your spiritual foundation. He wants you to believe that deliverance is not true. He wants you to believe that healing is not true. He wants you to believe that forgiveness is not true. He wants you to believe that redemption is not true. And so he consistently is trying at your mind so that he can get you to believe what he wants you to believe. So you'll drop your shield, you'll kick off your shoes, and you'll give in, and you'll succumb to his attack. But Jesus died upon a cross for you and I to have a sound mind. And so he has given us this salvation that covers our mind. In fact, the word helmet means to surround entirely. There's no part of your body, there's no part of your life, and there's no part of your testimony that salvation does not affect and impact and protect this morning. So as we look at, I'm already preaching, I'm sweating already this morning. But as, as you walk through life, you need to know your salvation is important. Your testimony is important. And so when Cody talks about that moment, that time when the Lord saves you, maybe you grew up in, in church your whole life, but do you go back to the time and you remember the Lord forgave you and he gave you a brand new heart and he gave you a brand new mind and he gave you a brand new life and he gave you a brand new outlook on life that you might walk in the soundness of mind that he established in his redemptive work on the cross. But why does wearing our spiritual helmet really benefit us? Obviously, since the helmet is what you wear to protect your head, Paul is telling us about the warfare on the mind. And it's funny because as I look through Scripture, I find that warfare in the mind is 
constantly in connection with each other. Now, you and I know Scripture talks about the importance of us renewing the mind. Romans 12, 2 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Ephesians 4, 23 says, renewed in the spirit of your minds. Colossians 3, 10 says, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we constantly see this connection that as for you and I as Christians, we need to be renewed. Our minds need to be transformed because who we are is not who we need to be just yet. And so there is this sanctification process. There's a, there's a, there is a, um, um, there is an instant and also a processional sanctification that slowly comes about. But what we also can see as we look through scripture is that Satan wants your mind as well. Oh, he wants your mind. How he desires your mind. And, and not just your mind, but really your thoughts. Because it's one thing to control your thinking, but Satan comes to you in your thoughts first. Five out of the six times that we see the actual word in the Greek, noema, as the word thought, we see it in connection with warfare. This tells us that the enemy understands the power of thought. Surely you and I do too. You need to know that both God and Satan are in a turf war over the space in your head. Both God and Satan want all you can give. They want to occupy your brain entirely. When it comes to our minds and spiritual warfare, the word says in uh, um, Philippians 4, 7, that our mind must be guarded. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. You don't guard something that isn't under attack. And we ought to secure our minds in the most safe place that there is, and that is in Jesus Christ, because the enemy targets the minds of the unbelievers. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, I noticed the other day, I, I picked up a computer mouse to look at a serial number. And uh, as I did, I noticed that it was a little fuzzy. Er, and I realized, oh, shoot. I think I'm getting older, you know. And I'm starting to lose that definition. And I'm not going blind, but you know, it's it's, it's moving towards that direction. And, and so when we're blinded, we lose the ability to see what's real in front of us. And Paul is saying here that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. In other words, he has made the mind unknowable to truth. That he has not allowed them to perceive truth. In fact, the first spiritual attack was over the control of the mind. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says this, But I am afraid... That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And it's for this reason that, that we are to take all thoughts into captivity. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And the reason we do this is because you and I, we need to be aware that the enemy also has thoughts. Satan has thoughts too. And we ought to really take advantage of the fact that we can actually know his plans. In fact, Scripture compels us to know the mind of Satan. Now, I'm going to be stretching that a little bit because we really don't want to know the mind of Satan. But look at, look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 2.11. 
so that we would not be outwitted, which is take advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant or without knowledge of his designs. The word designs literally is the word noema, which is thought or mind. So what we see here is Paul is saying we ought not be outwitted. We ought not be taken advantage of and, and, and put ourselves in a place that we are without knowledge of Satan's thoughts, his mind, his attacks, his strategies, his schemes. And so how are we supposed to know what Satan's thoughts or plans or designs or mind is towards us? But I want you to know this morning that Satan has a game plan. And I'm going to give you five things this morning that will help you no matter where you're at in life, whether you're struggling with sickness and disease, whether you're struggling with marital problems or, or financial problems or addictions or whatever it might be. I'm going to give you five things that you'll be able to look at and see where Satan is in your life in terms of the attack on your mind. Because hear me, he is absolutely after your mind. At some degree, at some level, some of you he has progressed further and some of you he is, he is continuing to attempt. But you need to know, because if he can get your mind, if he can get your mind, he's got you. The first one is simply this. Ephesians 6.11 says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The first one is repetition. You need to know that, that, that Satan has come to repeat. Now, we talked about this some weeks ago. We know that Satan's job description is found in the word devil. The word devil doesn't mean so much what his, what his name is, but what he does. And that word devil meant diabolos or diabolos, diabolos. And that simply means this, dia means to penetrate through, and balos means to throw. And so what we see is that Satan comes to throw uh, until he penetrates. So he throws and throws and throws until he penetrates. Have you ever heard the same lie over and over and over, and then just when you thought you had this under control, then he brought somebody else into your life and said this and said this, you're worthless, you're stupid, you're weak, you're whatever, and you heard those lies your whole life. Maybe it came from your mom, maybe it came from your dad or a family member, or maybe your school teacher or whoever it might have been. Maybe you were picked on the school ground, but it seems like your whole life you've been hearing the same lie. Is there anybody else out there like that? The same lie. Different people, but the same lie. And the word diabolos simply also means slanderer. We see it translated twice in Scripture as slander. And don't you know that slander is not an effective attack until it's repeated? It's repeated. It is a, an effective attack because it is repeated. And as we know, Satan is a slanderer. He is the accuser of of the brethren, and he will attempt to throw or bolo something at you again until, until it, it finally, dia, it penetrates your mind and completes its work. So here's what I want you to know this morning. When you're facing a repeated thought against what the Word says, the devil is attacking you, okay? When you're facing a repeated thought that is contradictory to the Word of God, about you, that is an attack. That's not a bad day. That's not ill thoughts. Recognize it for what it is and take authority and say, no, that's not what the Word of God says. 
This is what Satan says. We know you are a liar. When you speak your natural tongue, you're a lying. I am not what I feel like I am today. I am not what I think I am today. I am what this word says I am today. So recognize that repetition is his first step towards you. The second one is a solitary approach. Satan is not as cunning as we think he is. He doesn't have to be. He's bold. He doesn't have to be creative. He's been studying man for 6,000 years. And so he knows your habits. He knows what you do. He knows how you react. He knows how you respond. He sees you in your dark, silent, isolated, secret, private moment where sin creeps up into your life. And he knows how to come for you. He has our number. And Ephesians tells us this, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now that word schemes is methodius in the Greek, and it simply means this, meta is with, and otis is a road. And that's where we get the word um, um, uh, odometer, right, for your, when you're driving. But put together, methodius simply means this, it literally means a road, a single avenue, a solitary approach. You follow what I'm saying this morning? And we all can testify to the fact that Satan's not trying to get creative with our life. He will come the same old way. I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care how long you've been being sanctified. You know that Satan will continually come through that vice that he has found is effective against you. And so when you see him repeating in that same vice that you've always struggled with, no, that's the enemy. He's coming for me again. That's when you take on your truth and say, okay, let's, let's get with this. But here's what I want you to know, is that if it's a road, then all roads lead somewhere, right? Nobody drives a road just to go, well, I don't know. I see people driving roads all the time, not going anywhere around here at all, but they're just driving. But Satan has a destination. He has a road and he has a destination. So where is Satan going this morning? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 through 6 gives us a clue as to his destination. He says, Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You need to underline that word strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, he said a mouthful there. But pay attention to these words. First off, he says the power to destroy strongholds. And then he classifies the stronghold by using the word destroy. He says we destroy arguments. And so what I want you to know first is the word strongholds, okirama, simply means this. It is an, it's one of the oldest words in the New Testament that is used to describe a fortress. A fortress. For, you know what a fortress is? A fortress is the place where you can't defend yourself in all the land, but when you have to fall back, you know, to really, I think about Lord of the Rings, uh, Helm's Deep. You know what I'm talking about? Helm's Deep. That was a fortress. All my load of, nobody. Okay, Josh, me and you. All right. All right. There's a few of us out there. We know. Hey, listen. All right. Uh, thank you for helping me out this morning. I, I feel kind of geeked out there for a second. Uh, but Helm's Deep, if you watch the movie, Helm's Deep was a fortress. You couldn't just 
run up in Helm's Deep anytime you wanted to. That, that, that wall was thick as I don't know what, a mountain, and high uh, as a, uh, a mountain. That's a good word, too. <laughs> so to get into Helm's Deep, to get into a fortress, took a lot of work. But what it really took to penetrate that fortress was repetition. And when they came to Helm's Deep, they only came down one road. They knew they were coming the whole time. It was just consistency and persistence by the enemy until eventually all those who were in a fortress who were taking shelter and being safe until eventually they penetrated the wall and the door and now everyone who was safe now became captive. You see, that's what the enemy wants to do. He knows there are fortresses in our life that he penetrates. And when he gets into that fortress, he no longer allows it to be a fortress. He becomes a prison. And so the ironic thing is simply this, is that people hide in fortresses to keep people out. But then when the enemy comes in and he establishes himself inside this stronghold, what happens is simply this. Now you become the prisoner and everybody who can help you to free you, you're keeping them out because he's got a stronghold in your life. And now you're captive. You're looking out through the bars of the window. You want to be free, but you can't go nowhere. And people want to come in and help you, but you won't, re- you won't receive their help because you're, he's in a stronghold in your life and you're pushing everybody else out when, when all they want to do is help you and free you. So what is a spiritual stronghold, Pastor Scott? A spiritual stronghold is a deeply set belief filled with hopelessness, making us think situations against God's will cannot be changed. It is a deeply set belief filled with hopelessness, making us think situations against God's will cannot be changed. And I wish this was a special thing, but this is a common thing. We see this consistently in our life. Let me share with you two different types of strongholds. The first one Paul gives a clue to, that is in verse 5, he says, we destroy arguments. This is the first type of stronghold. Now, the word arguments here in the Greek is logismos, which means logic, where we get our word logic from. And so when you and I start to use logic to process a thought, to begin to understand how to take counsel, and we begin to push back on the knowledge of God or his word, and our logic trumps the word of God, you and I are in a stronghold, a rational stronghold. When you and I come to a logical conclusion, and that conclusion is in contrast to God's word, we are thinking as prisoners. That's a rational stronghold. In fact, Paul gives some allusion to this in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. He says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting logic accuse or even excuse them. Paul is saying right here, like he was in 2 Corinthians, that when the Gentiles who don't even have a law now are acting in a way as if the law was there, but the law is, is convicting them, but they won't, they won't, they won't uh, succeed to the law. They're doing something, even though the law of God is written on their heart. They, they do something contrary to that. He's saying they are acting out of logic. They're trying to use logic 
to oppose the, 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 the written word of God on their own heart. Even though they don't see the scripture in front of them, God has written his law on every man's heart. That's why we know that murdering is wrong. We know stealing is wrong. We know lying is wrong. Those things are wrong, not because someone told you, because God wrote those things on the law of your heart. And so when you do those things that are contrary to the word of God written on your heart, you know you're wrong. But when we do those things, we are acting out of logic. I need to lie because... I need to steal because I need to murder, although it might be with our words and our heart, because. But we still act in a logic. And this is a stronghold that Paul is talking about. And so from these two verses, we see that logic can play a major role in the strongholds we live. Often I hear people speak about uh, their lives from strongholds. I've heard people say, if God loves the world, then why didn't he uh, love me enough to save me from being abused by my mom and dad? See, that logic, if he loved me so much, then he would have saved me. Because logically, if I loved you, I would not allow you to go, let you go through those things because I understand what love is. And love is to save and to rescue And so logically, it makes sense that if I would do that, being a man, then surely God, if he was logical enough, would save me. But see, they're they're seeing this from a stronghold because they're elevating logic above the, the will of God. If God wants me to give in the offering, then why doesn't he give me a good job? If I'm supposed to forgive people, then how am I supposed to go on like it never happened? Logic. If God wants to heal me, then why am I? Still sick. So we, we allow logic to, to fester in, and we, we, we think we're being rational. And if you're an articulate, intelligent person, you're most susceptible to this. Because everything has to make sense with us. And when, when we hear something from the Word of God that doesn't make sense, it contrasts our logic. And then what we have is this, unbelief and doubt. And be careful that you don't allow the enemy wide open to your logic. And he sets up a stronghold and elevates your lofty thinking above the knowledge of God. Can I tell you that God does not have to make sense to you? The fact that he left heaven and came down and died for you while you are yet sinners is not logical. But he did it out of love. And the second one is this, it's irrational thinking. The word lofty opinions means high places or above the world or above the reasoning or without grounded thought. And so there's irrational strongholds and irrational strongholds are unfounded fears and worries that are completely unrealistic. They have no grounded reason, reasoning. And so the word simply means, hyposoma means out of this world thinking or thinking without grounds. These are the things that we tend to have when we have fears of diseases and dying early and rejections and fears of loneliness, fears of financial collapse. These types of fears, we have no grounded reasoning. Nobody loves me. Come on now. That's just a feeling. You know that. I'm not worth nothing. Nobody wants me. Nobody accept me. I'll never. It's the absolutes that always get us. It's the absolutes. And irrational strongholds eventually will play out because eventually what happens is, is that some, some real logic, some real reasoning will seep in and we'll realize we were going through a, a, an emotional time. 
a stressful time. Number four is simply this, is that as you move from a stronghold, then he begins to oppress. Acts 10.38 says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. The word oppressed here in the Greek means subjugating power or a power that holds you down. The word kata means hold down, and the other half of that, that word, Venezuela, uh, means an official ruler with power. And so what we see is simply this, is that you can see that, that oppression is when a ruler is holding you down. When a ruler is holding you down. Now, a ruler that holds someone down to me is a, a wicked king or a tyrant. That's how I would define um, a, a ruler that holds you down. And where do tyrants and wicked kings live? In a fortress. And the people that live there in the fortress who don't want to be there are captives and are subjugated to his power, are prisoners. And how does he control them? He oppresses them. He holds them down. So once the enemy infiltrates your mind and he finds a comfortable place to sit in and rule over and speak to you so that you may not escape his wicked kingdom. Look at Exodus chapter 1. We see an example of this. Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What's the goal here? To not let them escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The enemy wants to set up like a tyrant or a wicked king in your fortress and tell you how you should think, how you should feel, and how you should act. And he uses through oppression because oppression is the heavy use of burdens to keep you from regaining the freedom that God has given you to have. And it is right there for you, believer in, in Christ. It is right there for you, child of God. But we submit ourselves to our oppressor. We submit ourselves to our tyrant and our wicked king because we've allowed him access into some strongholds of our life that we've not submitted unto God yet. We are working on, but there are still some back holes, some open doors in our life, and the enemy sees these things. Oppression eventually leads to deception. Look at Exodus 16.3. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. We've heard this before. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Oh, it was so good back in Egypt when them heavy burdens were on us. When they was ripping our children from us and throwing them in the river. We couldn't have a, a grown boy because they were dying as soon as they were born. Uh, how wonderful Egypt was. Egypt was so great. I remember seeing your mom over there carrying four or five bricks getting whipped on the way to the building hay. You know, like that's, like, that doesn't make sense to us. But here's what happens with deception. Deception, oh, I'm going to get there just yet. I'm getting, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
here's what I want you to see about the, the tyrant and the king that oppresses you. He says this, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Can I tell you that a tyrant's oppression only caused you to look on the things that he allowed you access to. And he caused you to forget all the hard things that were such hardships in your life. And so he, he, he elevates the opportunities, right? And he caused you to forget all the oppression. That is that oppression that comes in, that, that tyrant begins to come in and begins to move you from oppression into deception. And number five is deception. So here's, we back it up really fast. So he comes in, he's, he's operating his job description. He's repeating that same old lie, that same old attack upon your life. He's coming down the, the solitary approach, that same road, that same vice you've always struggled with. And then he finds a place when he penetrates the fortress, he gets into your fortress and he sets up camp and he rules like a tyrant and a king and he begins to oppress you so you won't escape because he, don't want, he doesn't want you to be free. And then he, he, takes, he turns you into the last stage, which is deception. In 2 Corinthians 11:3 says this, but I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Destiny, if you'd come back up, please. Deception is when the false ideas have been, trade, have been portrayed as truth. Deception is, simp is simple. It's when false ideas have been portrayed as truth. But you're so oppressed that you'll do anything for the oppression, to find some way to cope with the oppression. You'll begin to accept false truths or partial truths as whole truths. We find this everywhere in socialism. We find this everywhere in communism. We find this everywhere that people, in, in trying to deal with the heaviness of the oppression of the regime that they are under, they'll begin to accept what's being said. So that way they're not in contention with their own self and they'll believe something that's not true just so they can be at peace with something. But Paul says this is deception. And to this extent, he says in Romans 7, 11, he says, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So what we see here is like Eve and Paul, what they thought was going to bring them life, Paul, that being the law of God, and Eve, that being the apple, what they thought was going to bring them life, in fact, brought them death. And this is where the enemy wants to bring you and I to. That what he brings to us, we think, is a way to have life, or is a way to escape, or is a way to deal with it or cope with it. But when in fact, really, it enslaves us even further. And it takes us away even more. I, I've had conversations with, with people and marital counseling who have um, had affairs on their spouses. And I've never heard one of them say, I found life when I really cheated. They often found death. They often found death. They were deceived into thinking that this was real life. And they found death. When you talk to addicts over substance abuse, when they come to a sober moment, they realize this, is that they thought they were finding a way to cope with their fears and find a way to cope with their problems. And what they really found was, was death, was, was a slave mentality. 
The enemy is so good at doing it this way. And so how then are we to fight the devil's attacks? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, the word captive is... Oh, yeah, let's get this right. The word captive... It's a compound word in the Greek as well, and here's what it means. The, the, it's, its root word means spear. Spear. It's a military term. Now, I thought about this because of all things, Paul could have said, and take every thought with authority, take it into custody, take it into submission, but he didn't say any of those things. He said, take it captive, which is a military term. Cody, would you help me out? Real fast, come up here on stage real quick. It's a military term. It, it's, it's, it's derived from the word tip of the sword. So here's what they would do is when they would take an enemy captive, go ahead and turn around. <laughs> by the tip of the sword. Now, here's the thing. I don't got to say too much to Cody when I want him to go where I want him to go. Matter of fact, you, you just stop when you want to, all right? You stop where you want to. And if, if you feel brave today, go ahead and back up. Now, y'all give a round, round of hand for uh, Cody. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. The tip of the sword, now... This is the Word of God. That's why it's so important for you to know your Word. Because when that thought comes down and tries to speak to you, you got to say, uh-uh. Uh-uh. You're going to go where I tell you to go. You're not going to say anything to me unless I let you say it. By the tip of my sword. And notice what he says. He also says this to add to emphasis to it. He says, and take every thought to capture to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The word obedience means to respond or to listen under. And so what he's saying is simply this. Just like Cody, when I had my sword out, he would have to respond to everything I said. It would listen to me. And so what he's saying is that when those thoughts come into your brain when he tries to establish the fortress in your brain or oppress you or deceive you. He is saying that when you use that sword, you use that word, it must listen to you. It must submit itself in obedience to you. And so this morning, I want you to know, I don't, I don't know what lies. In fact, just for my own self, I just, at home, I got this big window and I just begin to write down all the lies I've heard my entire life, some from my family, some from people in my life, some friends, things I've just thought on my own. And I began to write all those things down. And, 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 and then I just said, you know what, Lord? I need, I need to know what your word says concerning each one of those things. Because the enemy knows. He knows how to turn that sword on your back and move you where he wants to go. But here's what I noticed, guys. As I begin to look at those words on that window, 
I realized every one of those words were in rivalry to my calling in life. They were in rivalry to my calling in life. Everything God called me to do, it's like the enemy knew what my purpose was and went straight to work on not allowing me to walk in my purpose, to walk in my call. And so this morning, I want you to know that where you're being attacked is not your identity, it's not your confidence, it's at the very reason why God breathed you into this world, your purpose. What's your purpose this morning? What are you fighting? What's that lie you hear all the time? Because hear me, it is a lie. It's a lie he knows. He knows what he's asked you to do. He knows what you've been designed to do. He knows what God is going to equip you to do. He knows it, and he is speaking lies to you to control you that you might not live up to the purpose of God. And this morning, I say enough. Enough. Will you stand with me this morning? Lord, we come to you. We submit our minds to you. Father, every lie of the enemy that he has spoken to us and imposed upon us, and we have lived life in response to a lie. We've lived life, God, blinded by the gods of this world. I pray, Father, today that you would give us sight that we might see, that you might give us wisdom and knowledge that we might understand the attack of the enemy on our life. And then, God, even in the lie of the enemy, I pray, God, we would find courage from it to know this, in fact, is actually what we are, that this is who we are. Everything he has said we are not, we are actually those things because you have called us to a purpose, God, so much greater than the words spoken into our life, than the cries we've cried on our pillow, the times of loneliness and rejection and times of depression and oppression and suicidal thoughts. God, all those moments, Lord, really were speaking and, and glinting towards our purpose in life. Pray, God, that you would free us, God, from the strongholds of his prison. Pray you would free us, Lord, from the word of the enemy and make us alive to the word of God. I love you, Lord, this morning. If you're in here this morning and you've been struggling with your mind, the enemy, even while I've been talking, has been trying to tell you that I'm lying to you and this word is not true or that he's not talking about you, he's talking about somebody else and he's, he's trying to distract you from the truth the fact that he's been lying to you. You say, Pastor Scott, I'm so ready to get rid of that mindset. I'm so ready to cast off the lies. If that's you, will you raise your hand? Just show me who I'm praying for this morning. Yeah, because I'm raising both my hands this morning. I know who's coming after me. Father, I pray, Lord, Lord, look at your children. We're your children. And we are subject to a lie, Father, that is defining us, that's wrecking our marriages, 
that's killing our family. I pray, Lord, this morning, let us respond here, right here and now, that when we walk out of this sanctuary, that we walk in the truth of your word, walk in the power of your word. And so I pray, God, right now, Lord, free our minds from the word of the enemy. Let us walk in the wholeness and the counsel of the word of God. I ask it in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Do you love the word of God this morning? Amen. Let me challenge you before you leave. Next week is Father's Day. If you don't have a father, go find you one, bring him here, okay? Just go find some random father and bring him here. Bring your neighbor here. We want to see you here at 8.30 over in the fellowship hall. We're going to be serving all the things that make your heart stop. So make sure you come here. Have a great week. We love you. You're dismissed.